2: Hey, Holly.
1: Hey, Dave.
3: What is going on on the What Difference Does It Make podcast today?
1: You know, I should have been, I was fairly warned that you were going to ask me this question and I didn't have a prepared answer for you.
3: <laughs> you do realize we do this every week. I ask the same question and yeah, I don't ask for much.
1: I'm going to come up with a list of prepared answers that don't sound prepared when I'm answering your question.
3: Fun fact between the two of us, last night we went and saw a movie, together, which we never do.
1: Why didn't we say that? Why didn't I just say that without having to be reminded that something actually happened this week? We went to see, see uh, Annette, the Sparks Brothers movie. Yes. Not the Sparks Brothers movie, that's a whole different movie, which was <laughs> also awesome. Good. We also saw that together.
3: We've seen, we have <laughs> seen We've
1: seen the whole... Sparks, au revoir, in less than a month. Good one, Dave. Good. Good with your French, too, because this one had a French director. Thank you.
3: This one was, yeah. You followed up on that. Very good. If you love Sparks, it's worth looking into. That's all I'll say about that. Now we turn to The Heartland and John Mellencamp and a book that's out by Paul Rees.
1: He's legit. He was the editor of Q Magazine in in the UK and Kerrang!
3: Also wrote a couple of biographies on John Entwistle and Robert Plant. We had a great time talking with this Scott Scotsman. Uh, this, this fine oh, Scotsman. This fine Scotsman. Okay, thank you, Holly. I don't want to. I don't want to offend the Scotsmen since.
1: I don't know if that's correct. It's I just what 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 sounds right.
3: Okay, so why don't we just get right into our talk with Paul Reese? He is the author of Camp that is out now. And let's get into it on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Y'all, say you ready to talk Mellencamp?
4: I certainly am, yeah.
3: Okay, <laughs> wonderful. This book is—it's called Mellencamp. Simple. Is this an authorized biography?
4: Do you know a book that um, Pete Owens Carlin did the Springsteen book that he did?
3: I think I'm vaguely familiar
4: with that one. It's—it's it, it's kind of—it's—it's it's, it's really similar to that in that he knew all about it. He's been to the extent that um, I've interviewed members of his family. I've interviewed both his daughters, his brother, pretty much everybody that played, Well, everybody that's in his band now, and most people have ever played with him. Ex-managers, all the rest of it. And then he and his dad supplied all the photos the book. So he's been as cooperative as he could be. He's Seen the manuscript, etc., etc., etc. So it's not officially authorized, but he's been very helpful, and his management have been very helpful.
1: So, what is the difference? Because I know you've spoken to everybody, you know, I guess with his blessing. What's the difference between an authorized biography and what you're doing? Because I would say yours was authorized.
4: Uh, I think it's it's semantics. I, I think I think should he ever decide to, do it? it's exactly the same as Springsteen one. He uh, they cooperated and helped with that book, uh, and then he wanted to do his own. So. He left. I, I think should John ever decide to do his own book, uh, I think it potentially makes it slightly uh, easier for him to do that if, he, if he's not authorized something before.
1: So he can put the word on it on the cover. He can put that particular word on the cover.
4: Yeah.
3: All right. Well, after spending some time oh. with, with Mellencamp and your book, I feel like he would never approve of of anything that, that ever came out from anyone else except for, for him. He's a he's a stubborn fellow. It uh, it seems like uh, who, who likes likes to do things his way.
4: That's probably one of the reasons he's lasted as long as he has. He's you know he and one of the reasons he's I think so interesting. You know he walks to the beat of his own drum. I think possibly because you know he all the things that happened to him early in his career. As he you know he's pretty honest about. It. He made all the mistakes you're going to make right up front. You know having his name changed, somebody sorting out his image from and all the rest of it. And I think you know he, he had to fight pretty hard to do things his own way. He's pretty determined, and he has been pretty determined for the last 30, 40 years to do it exactly his way.
1: What drew? You, how much did you know about him in advance of this? What drew you to him?
4: I, I've been a, I've been a fan since Scarecrow way, way, way back in my youth when they just about invented the wheel. We guy were at there. School right. would have got mm-hmm. <laughs> a guy at school had got old, Jack and Diane. Uh, so that was the first time I heard him. And then, But the Scarecrow album was the first time I, I really listened to it. And I, I've been a fan since then. Been to see him when he played over here, but when I was on Q, round about the time of he was just finished work on the No Better Than This record, and I'd met him before he'd come over to the Q Awards, so I'd met him. Um, but then I got I got a chance to go and interview him in Bloomington and spent a couple of days with him, uh, and I didn't realise how interesting he was. And if you sit and talk to him, what a he's like a character out of William Ford. He's like a character out of American fiction, and I think that was the point realizing what sort of character he was, it's in the book. The first time I met him, he, he, he was with a, he got a walking stick, this old Victorian cane. uh, And he pulled a a three foot long blade embedded into the top of this, which he pulled out and then wafted under my nose. And you just think this is the sort of guy, he's like a piece of fiction himself. So that, that was kind of what drew me to wanting to tell his story.
3: What were your impressions, first of all, of Bloomington? And did you go to Seymour just to kind of get the atmosphere of, of, where this guy grew up in, in this small town.
4: I went to Bloomington twice. I think Bloomington's probably the... the and, and Bloomington, you know, small town Indiana is a small town Indiana. So I, I did two stints in Bloomington. And you just get the... yeah, you, you get a real understanding of... It, it, it is it is a small town. He stayed there. He didn't move to New York or LA. You wander around Bloomington, everybody knows who he is. You, you wander in a bar in Bloomington and they tell you they'd seen him across the street. And you walk into a bookshop, someone in the bookshop's got a story about John Mellencamp doing this, John Mellencamp, John Mellencamp meeting the Dalai Lama in Bloomington, all, yeah. all these bizarre sorts of things. So the idea that, I mean, he kind of embodies that that small town America, Midwest America ethos. He'll tell you the only difference is that Indiana is very much um, a red state and he's about as far and as opposite from a, from red as you can be in political yeah. terms.
1: I also was curious about the vibe of a small town. We live in Los Angeles, so, and, and yeah. either of us has lived in a small town. And it's fascinating, you know, that the way you colored it. So you talked a lot about or you wrote a lot about John's youth and how he was just kind of a like a bad boy, you know, not so much into education and, you know, a lot about his family, which was, you know, is great to have that that background. But how he developed into such a such a but like a thoughtful adult. He must have had the ability, the songwriting, the, the writing ability. It must have all been there for him to have turned into what he was. At least the way you describe, like his his sessions with the musicians, you know, and about knowing exactly what he wants and understanding the music.
4: Yeah, I, I think this, I think that's a really interesting point because I think if you if you talk to him about it, he will be, and and he does. He he very much says it's all about hard work. Anybody can do it with hard work, and there's no doubt <laughs> he he worked really hard. You know, he really did apply himself to the business of making himself good. But I also think there has to be, like you said, it has to be there in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. I I think you have to be blessed in some way, shape or form to be able to do that. And he says he taught himself, but um, I did an interview a long time ago with Rick Rubin. He was talking about working with Tom Petty. And he said, said, these people are kind of plugged into something that you and I aren't. He said, you could Mm -hmm. be having a conversation with Tom Petty. He'd literally be talking to you. You'd be engaged in a conversation with him. And he'd suddenly go, he'd suddenly stop and start playing guitar. And, and he would explain that he'd pick something out of the ether. He'd, just, that that he'd grasp whatever it was, the song or whatever's coming out of the ether. And then he, he would write a song in 10 minutes. And people around Camp talk about him doing the same thing. And I think whatever, he says he's trained himself to do it, but I, I think he, there's, there's some whether it's blessed or gifted or whatever it is, that you're able to tap into that kind of thing. And you you might be able to hone it and get better and better at it. But I think it's probably there when you start.
3: Yeah, yeah. well, you touched on it uh, a little bit like his upbringing. His parents had bongo parties. Can you explain what a bongo party is?
4: (laughs) I'm still not entirely sure myself what a bongo party is. I think it is actually, it is exactly what it says. Like His dad had a set of bongos. (laughs) People would come around the house, they'd be drinking music on, and the bongos would be passed around and p- would play the bongos. It's, I, I don't know that I've ever heard of the concept of a bongo party before or since, but, but that appears to be what it is.
3: Sounds like a drum circle.
4: Yeah. <laughs> like that, yeah. I think yeah. it is, yeah.
3: So he was always around music. I mean, growing up, there was music in the family. You know, they went to it was Protestant church. I don't know how much music there was there, but I'm sure that, you know, that kind of has an impact um, and you kind of touched on like he had this thirst for to discover discover music. He spent all his money on on records and things like that.
4: Yeah, and I think his um his half brother his, his, his a half brothers are an important part of this because if I, I spoke to to him, to Joe, he was the first one that started guitar. He didn't obsess over it or take to, but he he gave John some rudimentary lessons, gifted him the guitar. Joe Malenkamp, the brother, maintains that he's got the best voice in the family and, and has always been the best singer. But, but he, he said that, that John was just dogged about it. I think music... It's a weird thing that he never left Indiana, but I think, in a way, to escape from it creatively and be something else, that was the route he found out of it. And I think he probably understood from a really early age it was be that. He was, he was quite a quite a talented sportsman. He was quite a quick sprinter. He played American football. But I, I don't think he's ever been... I don't think John... Is the sort of person who would work with team sports. I think the idea of, uh, of conforming to what anybody else wants or doing what anybody else says or fitting in with the structure of 11, 15 other people was ever going to work
2: for
1: like it, and it sounds like the way you describe his personality i mean throughout the entire book the way his personality is is that there was no way he wasn't going to be successful in music
4: tremendous amount of admiration respect for him because i I think he just didn't appear that he was going to be stopped and and you know the, the first couple of records the first three four five records you know he had all sorts he was Dropped from a record company, second record record company refused to put out third and fourth record. The, the, the record, the breakthrough record, American Fool, the real breakthrough record. The record company didn't want to release it. They didn't think Jack. They they couldn't see Jack and Diane as a single. Um, they wanted him to put horns on it, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And he he stuck to his guns and did it his way. Like, there's a there's a great story in the book where they send an emissary from the record company down to the studio and he's attempting to explain why horns should be on the record. Uh, and John literally let him out the studio door and closed the door behind him onto the street. So he was always going to do it, but I, I think that, that sort of determination to, to do it his way, to be who he was going to be, I think is, the, is one of the great things that's admirable about
3: him. One of my favorite quotes is from his I guess, grandfather Speck, Grandpa Speck, I'll say it there. <laughs> if you're going to hit a cocksucker, kill him. And so I think that seemed you've mentioned that a number of times in the book and I'm sure that that was the way he looked at it was, uh, you know, you've got to commit yourself to, to something. And this is what he did. This is, this is all he knew. He's like, all right, I'm all in. I'm either all in or I'm not in at all. And that's you know like, okay, this is going to be my life. I got to keep pushing.
4: Yeah. I think we, I mean, we mentioned this background. I think that, that, I mean, that's almost like one of his, um, you might as well as as inscribe that, Quote on tablets of stone because he, he he held on to what his grandfather said I and mean, I think all the men folk in the family the, the the older men that he was sort of around and looked up to were were competitive but also pitted the kids against each other and themselves against each other and you know he his brother said his half brother said to me you no know, second didn't count in the family no one you weren't patted on the back for coming second you you were expected to win or to try to win. His dad would hold these sort of he would make the 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 three brothers box against each other and sprint against each other and do all these kind of things. And he definitely carried that all the way through. It, the band members that you talked to, right from the earliest, you know, um, Kenny Aronoff, who was the, the was the drummer for a long time with his band, would just tell me that you know you were made to do it over and over and over and over again, and it had to be perfect. And and the band the band were just drilled to a ridiculous degree with rehearsals and and, and all that sort of. You know, he's not one of those characters who just sort of you know, wings it or it just he he pushed everybody else around him as well. well
2: I'm good it on her-
1: one of those characters in a in a book like you say in a novel that he he pushes you as the you pushed the reader right to the edge but his personality you know you you were always wondering where he was going to you know go off next and I think you mentioned Kenny Aronoff I I think I might have felt the most for him throughout the whole book yeah Yeah. (laughs) although obviously he did you know pretty well for himself afterwards I mean he became a success yeah,
3: on his own. One of the finest drummers yeah. in the world. I mean yeah. I mean there's no one like him really.
2: Yeah.
4: I suppose like a lot of people John's you know I, I would imagine like, it, it, he's he was difficult and challenging to work for. But like a lot of personalities and characters that like, the people that do I think they will all credit that that he bettered than I, I might one chick who's been with him pretty much since day one will, will, will said you know Kenny turned up with a massive great drum kit and and John didn't want that. He wanted somebody who could play simply spare drums. So he started piece by piece to take away the bits of the kits until it was down to the bare minimum. And then he had him play a style that was the bare minimum. And that became Kenny Aronoff's signature style. So I think there's, you know, Kenny's undoubtedly, you, you do feel sorry for Kenny at various intervals through the book. But, you know, I, I think if he, well, he did. He said, you know, he, he will credit John with, he, he owes a significant part of his career to what he got for playing in with John Millencombe.
1: Oh, no question. Probably for for most of them, you know, yeah. I I would say. But uh, just going through it, I but like probably with any band or in any sport, you know, the growing pains. But he's hit the, the personality. John's personality, you you made very clear, yeah. and throughout his whole <laughs> throughout his whole life.
3: I mean, you also said in the book that um, I think he learned with his first band. There was it was a democracy. You mentioned the, his first lesson was. We can't have a democracy. There's only one, there's got to be one guy in charge and that's, that's going to be me.
4: Right. I think him and um, John and Bruce Springsteen, are, are, they've sort of had parallel careers. I think they're working together now I think they're quite close and they're very similar in that respect. You know, I think Bruce is perceived probably as more amiable and easygoing, but there's, there's only one person in charge of the East street band. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's not, steve van dan and i think it's it's exactly so you know i think his frustration with the, the, the first band was that they it, it took ages to even organize a show because there were six seven people voting on it and no, I, I think there's been one person voting on what john's doing for for 34 years and he hasn't done too bad yet
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to kenny Aronoff about um and the drum sound i love uh the story of jack and diane how it you've how it just mm-hmm. came about, uh, just the whole story, uh, which we can touch on in a second, but it was the Bee Gees who helped create mm-hmm. this sound uh, by bringing in the yes. Lindrums,
4: right? <laughs> yeah, the, they were in Criteria Studios in Miami, and, um, yeah, the Bee Gees are in the next studio, and, and it's Albie Galuton who's the, the, the Bee Gees producer. Mm-hmm. I, I think, if memory says they're working on Spirits of clone record, I think that's the record they were working on. I think there was two, three, four different versions of Jack I and Dan that weren't working, and Albert Galutin just popped round with this drum machine and said, try that. I think Kenny Aronoff insisted on programming it if he was going to be sidelined for a drum machine, because he'd famously been removed from the record before that. He didn't play on the record before that when he just joined the band, so he programmed the drum machine. And then Mick, uh, Mick Ronson of, of David Bowie fame, who was also shared a management with um, with Merlin Camp. He turned up and it was his idea for the, the hand claps and, and it, it, it's sort of it's one of those rare songs that he's put together almost like little bits being added along the way that when you listen to it all sound like they were they were naturally supposed to be there. If you listen to it now it's it's for the time it's 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 an extraordinarily weird record. Does, yeah. there's no actual chorus. There's all sorts of weird things going on and, and as I said, when the record company heard it, they just did not understand it at all, didn't think it would amount to anything.
3: But there was one concession, right? I mean, there was a plot twist to uh, to Jack and Diane. You want to touch on lyrically who Jack and Diane originally were?
4: Yeah, originally it was a mixed race couple. And that was the point he was making. I think Jack was a a, a black American football player. And, and that was the, the point he was making, that it was a mixed race couple. And, and he was advised you might want to avoid that particular taboo at if you want to call it at that particular time and he did remove that from the lyric and he's gone back to, i mean if you know the check it out video it was a mixed race couple dancing in that video that caused a bit of a storm then and, and all this time later he's now uh, at work on a music called jack and diane um where i think they've reinstated that storyline that's the, they've sort of revived the original storyline
3: so Originally, he was sucking on a cigarette, which makes sense, instead of a chili dog. How did that happen, or why? I don't understand (laughs) that. I never understood sucking on a chili dog.
4: I, I think it's all those same things. I think that he's not, you know, John's not stupid. I think he knows which battles to fight and when. Yeah. And I think he was very much like, there would be compromises he was willing to make, and he would understand making, and then there would be issues he was going to fight until he was... That, that, you know, you'd have to drag him out of the room. You could probably have hit him with a shovel and he'd still come back fine, though. No.
2: Sucking on chill it out. Outside taste freeze. Diane sitting on Jackie's lap, got his hands between his knees. Jackie say, hey Diane, let's run off behind the shade of trees. Dribble off those Bobby Brooks, let me do what I please. Say Oh yeah! Life goes on. Long after the thrill of living is gone, say, oh yeah, life goes on. Long after the thrill of living is gone, they walk on.
4: I think the same thing with the name, you know, he didn't like being Johnny Cougar, but he accepted that as a necessary thing to, to you know, he was pretty much told, unless you change your name, you don't get a record deal. And I think he's he's known which battles to fight and when, you know, he he's not stupid, John, far from it. I did
1: not know that story about how Cougar came about.
4: I say 16, you know, the, the extraordinary thing that, um, that he just, he didn't know until he saw the album cover. Yeah. You know, the, the album cover was marked. up. That was the first time he knew that, his name had been tamed to Johnny Cougar uh, and it took him it took him a long long time to get rid of that name as so. well
3: yeah no one ever called him Johnny either so. no yeah no. no we desperately need to take a break so let's do that and be right back on the what's the Principal podcast
1: Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Paul Reese, talking about Mellencamp. Uh, a
3: great early story is I didn't, he played the whiskey, he opened up for the jam. And yeah. uh, this was his showcase, but uh, I don't think it went that well.
4: All sorts of things about that, that, that gig fascinate me. I mean, the, the fact that John was paired with the jam to start with makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> whoever came up with the idea of that. But the idea that, um, you know, I Need a Lover was obviously the one song that he'd, he'd had a sort of minor, it'd been a big hit in Australia, it had it, caused a minor sort of kerfuffle in, in America, Pat Benatar had done it. But the idea he came out in a raincoat and removed that and was, was wearing his briefs, <laughs> and, and it's just, what on earth? You know, you, you see John Mellencamp now and think, it's, it's unimaginable that he would do that. But I, I think that it's that sense that, that you know that he was someone who was just desperate to do what it took right. to get where he wanted to go or to make an impression
3: also he never got good reviews i love these this was back in the day when rolling stone just they wrote whatever like unfiltered exactly how they felt like uh, like the first one i you know i wouldn't buy a used car from, from this man anytime he opens his mouth it oozes insincerity no one writes reviews like that would you, i mean i'm sure you could never do something like that or have you <laughs>
4: I, I may have occasion. It's done not tell my pilots, I may be. Uh, but, <laughs> really? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a really good point. I think that that era where there was that, I mean, it was a, it was a blood sport, wasn't it? And I, I think it made things, whether people were right or wrong, it made magazines were more interesting in those days without sounding like a, well, I do sound like an old man, but it made things more comfortable. That confrontational aspect to it, it made things more interesting and it made more, things more challenging. And, and John, John would, I, I guess now, would say that, it, that he wasn't affected by it, but you, you can bet that John had every one of those reviews filed away, knew exactly what had been written, knew exactly who'd written it, and he was absolutely determined to, to shoot it back down that time.
1: Not just you know in the heartland, but you know all over in the states. Using the states as an example, what do you see as his appeal on like on the coasts? I mean, why why did why did we we embrace him so much? He wasn't writing about our stories.
4: I think there's two things. I think and and, and you know like all these it really they sound really simplistic. But the first thing is he wrote songs that when you heard them on the radio sounded great, just great songs. Yes. And, and over here we always had that thing. People were always. There was a certain line of critical thinking about Oasis, for example. Why did Oasis, why this, why that? Well, they wrote songs that a stadium can sing along to and grasped you immediately. It sounds really easy to do that. It it really isn't. It's really, really difficult to write (laughs) those songs. And I think the other thing about John, I think just instinctively people knew he was the real deal. He was authentic. He, He was unvarnished. He walked it like he talked it. I don't think he's an everyman because I think he's more complicated than that. I think there's much more to him than that. But you believed what he said. You believed when John was writing about American farmers, he knew what he was talking about. He, He understood what he was writing about. You know, when he wrote Small Town, he was a guy from a small town and that was about him and i think that authenticity is a massive part of um, why he appealed across the board
1: speaking of uh writing about farming we always knew he was involved with farm aid but it was really it was great to read the story about how he got involved with farm aid and you know how he took it we just knew it as a as a show but to really read more about his feelings about it and the whole you know how they carried it across the, the country or
4: across the heartland but i think that it is incredibly important to him and, and you know to, you know lots of musicians have adopt cause is some musicians pay lip service to some people are more involved than others but you know he it's been half a lifetime's work for him and uh, i think if you know i spoke to Carolyn mulgar who's the Chief executive of Farm Aid, and um, you know she'll tell you how he's obviously he doesn't go and work in the office every day in the Farm Aid office, but but he's he's tuned into what they're doing, he cares about what they're doing. If he he'll hear something or read something, and he'll about farmers or an issue that he wants to get involved in, he'll respond to it, and he, he's very opinionated uh, uh, and very engaged with what they do. You know he's performed at virtually every Farm Aid gig, this he uh, he's reached out to other people to get them to come and play gigs. And he stayed with that since 1985. So, you know, that that's a long commitment for, for one thing.
2: Scarecrow on a wooden cross, blackbird in the barn. 400-inch acres, that used to be my farm. Grew up like my daddy did, my grandpa killed his land. When I was five, I walked a fence while grandpa held my hand. Rain on a scarecrow, blood on the black. Make me bright. Son, I'm just sorry, there's no legacy for you now. Rain on the scarecrow, blood on the plow. Rain on the scarecrow, blood on the cloud. Crops grew last summer, weren't enough to pay the loan. Yeah, all, mm-hmm. all, all
3: it took to was uh plan. one sentence from Bob Dylan to uh, to put a, <laughs> to send them into action. It was yeah, the ninety it was at eighty-five, the live age show where yeah. Yeah. Dylan just said it'd be great if we did this for farmers. And yeah. you mentioned that that Geldof was pissed off about that. Is that correct?
4: Yeah. I think there's been a lot of, I think Geldof, there was a, a perspective at the time that, that it was somehow. Unenlightened. That it was a it was a statement about you know I think it was a bit of a yee-haw statement because it was about white American farmers stuff like that and it it wasn't meant that I don't think it believed for a second it was meant that way by Dylan I think it was you know that, that that much media attention was focused on that issue focusing across the board on issues that needed telling and there were stories in America that you know it, it was the era of Reagan and there were American stories that also needed telling at that point you know there were American communities that were under threat as well I don't think Dylan I don't think John I don't think Willie Nelson or Neil Young were involved with Farm Aid because they disagreed with what was going on with Live Aid. I think they, they were involved with it because they also felt there were other the battles that needed fighting as well.
1: That's a much better way to put it. It, it was inspiring.
4: I think that that's, you know, I think, again, that, that thing about John, he does care about the communities and his own community and what is going You know, he's, he's been involved with. Indiana University in Bloomington, he's donated to Indiana University, he plays gigs in and around Indiana, I think there's, as I said, when you go around Bloomington, I think he's quietly done things for causes and people and things around Indiana that aren't publicised. so I think he's he's someone who values community, is interested in community, is engaged with community as well, so far as you can be.
1: These are the things you want to know about your artists.
4: I think that, again, you you, you sort of touched upon that, or you asked at the start about why why I want to write about John. I think there's a lot of rock and roll and I I've done, there's a lot of rock and roll stories where it is the, you know, there's the there's the self destructive element, there's the to the live fast that young element. There's all those sort of things. I think with John, there's a work ethic to John, there's a value system to John. For all of that, I think he's a good guy. I, I think he's a he's a really, really good guy. And I think it's not often you get a tell, chance to tell a story in that respect about a good guy. One of the good guys. And he's got his flaws and his rough edges and he's, you know, he's rough as a cob as he would describe it. But I also think he is a good guy. I, I think he's, his heart's in the right place.
3: He's also a hell of a performer. We saw, I, I remember seeing him in, I think it was the Scarecrow tour. And it blew me away. Like it was like it like a soul revival. And he was dancing. Like I, I mean, I, he won me over at that time. Like I, Rain on, yeah, Rain on the Scarecrow, that was like the first album. Like, oh, okay, this is a serious artist. You know, I always thought he was like a, a wannabe Springsteen, and then I heard Scarecrow, and like, oh, okay, this is something here. And then I went to see his show, and like, this is, wow, this guy is amazing, and this band is insane. That's how he won me over. Was that your thoughts as well, when you...
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, it's that it's that old school where he he won people over as well by going out and playing to people. You know, he went out and toured and toured and toured, and he drilled the band. You know, you, you, I, I spoke to several members of guys who were in the band back then and it it was it was like they were training for an olympic sport to get ready to go and do those shows and and he would run round stage if if people were standing still he would be berating them on stage and and he pushed himself just as hard as well and um first time i would ever been to america and he was on the road doing the scarecrow tour i I didn't get to see him but you, you would hear on the radio station wherever you went people talking about this was the tour to see in america at that point and you know, John didn't tend to travel outside of America a lot, so I had to wait along. I, I think it was probably the, the... It would be early 90s, 91, 92, before he came over to the UK and saw him in the... And he was great. He was absolutely great. The, the other really interesting thing is him is how he's sort of gone from that sort of rock and roll performer to somebody who's much more of a sort of an American folk artist now. Mm-hmm. And he's great in an entirely different way now. He's one of the very few artists who's matured and aged gracefully. He's done it with, you know, he managed that process really, really well and really smartly.
3: Yeah, it could have been easy for him to become, you know, just an oldies act, and but he could play mm-hmm. now. He could he could yeah. play small town and Jack and Diane still, but you know, kind of like Dylan, just kind of reinvent, do uh, new arrangements that kind of fit his style now, make it com- interesting to him, and still keep that audience that uh, you know, not not the pop audience, but just an adult audience that, that uh, desires new music and to to hear the, these, these stories.
4: He, he talks about Pete Seeger saying to him. Um, Pete Seeger giving me a piece of advice saying, if you want to be, if you want to have longevity, keep it small. And there's a really interesting process that he that he sort of gets to the point where he decides to go and play theatres, that he's had enough of playing amphitheatres into places that, you know, and partly, obviously, as you get older, you know, you do have to scale, things. most artists do have to scale things down. But I think also there's an understanding there that, in the records he's written, what he's writing about, Styler's records, he's not attempting to call anything other than an audience that is of similar interest and a similar age to him. He's not attempting to play down or dumb down. You know, you go into the, I love the Rolling Stones, but there's Mick Jagger is still attempting to, to pull off the act of convincing you that he's not a 70-odd-year-old man up on stage. And John doesn't do that. John, you know, he's 70 this year and, and he, he acts it and he writes about things that interest him at that mm-hmm. age. And I think that's a, he's been very, very smart about that. And you know, there aren't many artists that do that and pull that up. I think Dylan's done it well, um, but there aren't many. that do it.
3: One of my favorite songs actually is minutes to memory. Like when I was in college, that was like my mantra, like suck it up and tough it out and be the best you can. I used to say that in the morning, you know, you are young and you are the future. So suck it up, <laughs> tough it out, and be the best you can as a kid. That's what I was saying. Cause you know, there's something, but now you listen to that song and it's, it's reversed. I, I look at it as the old guy, you know? it's That's why the song's brilliant. So it's
1: aged well, for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah I think he sings it now. I think his, 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 he sings it now from the – when he first wrote it, he was obviously the young guy on the bus. Yeah. taking yeah. I think he sings it now and performs it now as the old guy, given the young guy. So he's he's kind of flipped it as well. I mean, yeah, the best songs are ageless anyway, aren't
2: they? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. When he the old dog in the twilight's last gleaming He said, son, it sounds like rattling old bones This highway's long, but I know some that are longer I sun up tomorrow, I guess I'll be home To the hills Kentucky tug across the Ohio River The old man kept talking about his life and his times He fell asleep with his head against the wind This man's pillow is his peace of mind This world offers riches Riches we will And I don't just stop
3: thing about just songwriting he had a song he had a great songwriting partner but george green he was kind of like the i don't know like bernie toppin or i don't know they they were they worked together and it they just had a falling out i guess or what what's the story behind george green is this guy that i, I that pushed him you know <laughs> create some wonderful songs
4: I, I love george green as a character because he's kind of the the, the bookish perspective geekish guy in class I mean they were you know, they were at high school together, but they went to high school together in wow. Seymour. And um George sort of all hung around them, but he was always the guy that was, you know, he didn't play sports, he was and, and it was only when Mellencamp was um he he made a couple of records and and oh, it was just before he made his first record, that the George he he ran back into George Green, who was working in a convenience store. Got into conversation. And George Green said he'd started writing songs or writing lyrics, and then they started writing these songs together, neat, neat and neon. George Green's bed in George Green's house, mm-hmm. and it is—it's it's a weird sort of—it's um, kind of like an of, of mice and men version of um, Elton John and Bernie Taupin. These two, you know, <laughs> the, the the falling out. I think John John's it, it is more like I don't think there's any big dramatic bustle. I think it's over a period of years. George Green probably became more, more protective over the lyrics he wrote, and saw them being delivered in one way. John wanted to put them in another way, and the inevitability with these things is, as, as we said earlier, there's, there's only one. There's only one way it gets done, and I think uh, it, it eventually was. It, it, it John got tired of I mean, having to explain himself, and 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 that was the end of of George Green and that relationship. But I think it, it's. You know George Green's written some fabulous lyrics. They, they work perfectly. The George Green's best yeah. lyrics work perfectly with and and his treatment of them. Uh, they just complement each other perfectly.
3: Yeah, your life is now Crumpling down. Yeah, rain on the scarecrow. Just I love each and every one of those songs. It's just did they trade lyrics or was it all? You know, if George wrote most of the lyrics for those songs or or how that 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 uh, process uh, worked.
4: I think George wrote the lyric and John edited accordingly and would go back and say, not sure about that, not sure about that. And it would be re-edited. So I think it, it was, it, it was a bit more collaborative probably than Elton John and Bernie Taupin. I think Bernie Taupin writes a lyric and Elton John sets a song to it from, yeah. from what I can gather. I think there's probably a little bit more collaboration in editing going on, but, but they start, yeah, with, uh, and, and there's Human Wheels as well, which um, was based on a the eulogy that, um, uh, George Green, I think it was his father's funeral. Gave it his father's funeral, yeah. and that was put to, a, to to music as well. So there's a really in, uh, just one of those interesting collaborations, and I guess from two people that had to know each other well, had to trust each other as well. This land
2: today shall drive, it's my giant dreaming self while I with human in eyes unequal to the sweeping curve of life stand on the single of time
1: I want to ask about the the, the daughters. He, he, I, I enjoyed reading about he. He, he seemed a little softer. <laughs> I enjoyed getting the soft side. Seeing, hearing uh, you interviewed both uh, two of his daughters.
4: Yeah, I, I interviewed Teddy Joe and Justice. Yeah.
1: Yes, and the it's it seemed like always a nice relationship.
4: Yeah, I think the best you can say both of them said independent of each other. So that whenever in their lives that they, they were not sure. Or they wanted some advice, or reassurance, or counsel. They would always pick up the phone or go and see him. And I think you've you've done pretty well as a parent if you get if you get to that point. I, I oh, love absolutely. the fact that one of my favourite bits in the book is I think it's um, Justice's 16th birthday party, and it, he, he catches um she'd smuggled a, a bottle of beer out of the garage and was sitting with some friends there there He's got this um, Defuski Island. He's got a the house on the fish garden That they're, they're out on the beach there having a beer and he catches them and he cancels the party that they've got planned for the next day the big 16th birthday party he has her cleaning the house and so because obviously he was quite rebellious in his youth and fought against his father's um big tax law so do you ever share that information with him you said it was very much like do as i say not as not as i might have done and none of them got handouts he did it wasn't you know you were expected to work for what you got. I I think there's a respect for him for that. And I think they both feel that they were better served because of that. However difficult it might have seemed at the time.
3: Every interview was the same way, kind of like, uh, you know, just immense respect. He worked me to the bone. Mm. I was miserable during the recording session. (laughs) I was I hated every second of it and I will do it again. (laughs) You know, they're just devoted to John milk. They believe in this man, which is, I mean, that's, what you want, I guess.
4: I guess it's you know it, it's the nature of people that you you follow, whether it be you know that whether you a lot of them described it. I mean, Kenny Aronoff described making the American fool as like going to Vietnam. <laughs> so that there is this sense of go, this sense of going to war and the battle, and the nature of the person that you follow. I didn't speak to anybody who who didn't respect him. You know, they might have had disagreements with him. They might have not liked the way you went about certain things. I also think the thing that you have to remember with that, and I think it's sometimes lost, when when, it, when you're talking about X-band members or people who've played with people who tend to have these opinions, at the end of the day, it's John's name above the marquee. And, and every, it's his responsibility. And, and he's the guy that carries the guy. He's the guy that's had to write the songs. He's the guy that has to go out and sell them. And, and he's the guy whose career stands or falls on what's happened. So I think, you know, that amount of responsibility and pressure also has an impact on the way you interact with other people as well
3: I I love that he's been able to attach himself to to projects that where you're scratching your head like you know he he did the uh plays he he worked with Stephen King do he's doing musical he wrote a screenplay and this guy I mean he just goes like he he sets his mind to something and it's just like oh I'll I'll write a screenplay I mean he doesn't does he he just goes right in it's a hundred you know just full hog right
4: full hog
1: and I'll direct it and and directing oh yeah and he directed it yeah I'll direct
4: this too yeah, he's always been lacking in confidence, self-confidence. Um, <laughs> I think that's that, that that you know that's that thing that we like we said earlier that, that that he will turn around and tell you that anybody can do what I do with a yeah. little hard work and application. I, I think that's not you know, not because he's he he is. I'm trying to think of he's he's a very very good painter. He's a very very good artist. He, he he genuinely isn't the you know we we all know that you know Bob Dylan has, has tried his hand at that are Ronnie Woods and the, the, the you know the, the musician painters. Uh, and it, it is very much a musician's done that. John, it's obviously helped him being John Mellencamp, but you speak to people, you know, I spoke to the, the, the woman who exhibits him in New York, the gallery in New York. He would have had a career as a painter. He would have been noticed as a painter, irrespective of, of, of what he did. You know, he was the last exhibit he had in New York was alongside Robert Rauschenberg. He would sit on that level that he's unique in that respect. I, you know, that he, he turns his hands to all these things. I think that makes him unique how creative he is and the fact that I don't think he's, his brain is ever still. You know, he's a 70-year-old man who's still trying to do multiple things. He hasn't sat back, put his feet up and, and entered his dotage playing the hits. He hasn't done that. He, he's yeah. constantly trying to stretch himself, which I think is, again, admirable.
1: Can you tell a story about his, his first exhibit in New York? It was a co-exhibit, I think, with Miles Davis? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny, as, as the reader, and you you know what it entails when you're opening an art exhibit, you know, if you've been to an opening, that it's sort of a, you know, cocktail party-ish. He seemed surprised at what it turned out to be and the people that showed up, and also the names, obviously, were were, were the draw, but he seemed, you know, so disgusted and horrified. At the idea of an art opening that he left early,
4: I think I think he was very conscious that um, you know he's he's aware that being John Mellencamp, being a rock star helps you get a foot in other doors. <laughs> I think, but he was very conscious that he wanted to do. He wanted his painting to be, t- he wanted to be judged in the same way. He, you know, he went back and took classes. He went back and, 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 and worked with, with other, with painters and took tutorials and things like that. I think he felt that first opening that the Miles Davis one was, you know, they put a billboard on Sunset Strip, and that doesn't happen for, for the normal. You know, your first art exhibition, wow. you don't get a billboard on Sunset. I think he felt he was being marketed as a rock star uh, and, and he wanted to be judged more as a, I think he felt in retrospect, it was a mistake to have done that early on. And the later things that he did when he exhibited, they were small things, you know, he did things in Midwestern galleries in Texas and things like that. And he he sort of built his way back up to having a a New York gallery and a New York exhibition. I think it's exactly the same thing. It was like going out on the road and touring. He he paid his dues before he he went and headline medicine square garden. I think he viewed it in exactly the same way.
3: You touched on like, he felt like he was actually this exhibit with, uh, with Robert Rauschenberg that's that was like his okay. You're legit. Like once he once he made that, that was his Madison Square mo- Garden moment.
4: I think it was a massive thing. I mean, I think the first New York exhibit was a big thing. But I think when you're placed on that level, you know, you're talking about you know one of the significant figures in American. Art. I guess it's like if he'd written his first novel, and they said you're going to do a book reading with Don DeLeo or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, you're placed on that level, and you're seen on that level. It, it's a big thing. You know, you can't imagine. Bless Ronnie Wood, but but nobody's gonna be exhibiting Roddy Wood's paintings with Jackson Pollock, for example. That's that's not gonna happen. John's work stands up to that. It, it, it does stand up to that. You can read critics in the New York Times and I, I think he's respected for, for what he does as an artist and the way he's gone about doing it. The fact that, that exhibit exhibition didn't look or sound or wasn't ludicrous and hugely unbalanced is, is a testament to that, I think.
3: Do you have a favourite piece? at all of, uh, of his artwork?
4: The last time I went to interview him, he was complete. It's, it's a it's a portrait of, um, of Elaine that he'd, uh, you know, his, his ex-wife that he was doing. Uh, and he'd been doing it for years and years and years. And uh, a giant canvas and, and really, really striking. I, I like all his portraits. I think it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I, love, I love some of the portraits he does. A couple of self-portraits are great as well the way he sees himself through right. his own eyes, is very interesting. There's a, there's a darkness and a, um, yeah, an edge to those pictures. That's really interesting as well.
3: You say he's disciplined as a, as a painter. Is he disciplined as a, as a writer, a songwriter? Does he's, is he set aside some time to, I don't know. What is, what is his daily schedule like?
4: I think painting is his, is his obsession. I mean, I, I think yeah. he's, he's as obsessed with music and what he does, but I think he, he goes and paints every day, but he, he has that. The mantra he has now is, create something every day so he, he makes furniture as well in the, the art studio certainly the one in Bloomington that there, there's a guitar there there's an electric guitar an acoustic guitar in there and he's so when the muse strikes him for a song he puts the paintbrush down picks the guitar up yeah. and writes a song I think he, he said he's he, he's always open to that he's open to creating all the time and he, that's how he's disciplined himself to be open and available whenever You know, if the muse strikes him to paint, he'll paint. If there's a song that's burning to get out, he's open to doing that. He he, he claims that you can teach yourself to do that. I'm not entirely sure that's true. He said it often, you know, his life, he said, if you can have an artist's life, you have to create every day. And that's what he tries to do.
1: And he was good at sports. He can, I guess you can have everything.
4: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's a really, in some ways he's really irksome. Because it's like, if if you you know most. Most musicians are not good at sports, but he was He was quick. He played football. And, you know, they had this um, flag football league. With the, there's a great story that his, his half-brother Joe tells that, um, you know, they, they played flag football. So John had a flag football team with his band and he invited Joe. Joe was a, was working as a fireman in Cincinnati. So he invited Joe to bring the firemen down to play them. And the first year they come to Indiana, the fireman and Joe uh, and John and the band beat them. And after the game... John whisks them all back to the house. There's a big barbecue. There's, there's beers. There's drinks. There's music. And the following year, he invites them back for a game. And and the firemen decide at this point that they're not going to lose. They're actually going to win, and they do win the game. Uh, and there's no barbecue. There's no music. There's no invites. <laughs> no, he he takes even even a game of flag football. You know, second isn't good enough.
1: So a loser.
4: Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the other way of putting it. Yeah.
3: But that okay. So then. One of my favorite quotes about songwriting that that's in there, it says uh, that John says the essence of being a songwriter is to show some humility. You want something that goes into people's hearts. I'm still hoping to write that song. There's a number of songs where I think he's reached that. Uh, what are some of your favorites?
4: It's interesting because I, while I was writing, working on the book, I did a, a Melencamp playlist that <laughs> I could just play when I was driving anywhere and doing that. And there's 25, 30 songs on that. And they're all knockouts. I, I think, Pink Haze is obviously Rain on the Scarecrow, and it's the memories we've mentioned. I think there's some of the later songs, I just think, that I, I think, um, I, I love We Are the People from The Lonesome Jubilee. I think that's a great mm-hmm. song. And then when you get later on, Rural Root, the song that's on Freedom's Road, I think is an amazing song. Uh, just a, a stunning piece of work. Gina on, on Life, Death, Love, and Freedom's a, an amazing song. Um, what Kind of Man Am I on am Clans and Hill, please. I think a lot of the songs, For want of a better term, the darker songs or the subject matter songs, or the. I I just think he writes great folk songs, great, you know, spiritual songs. Uh, What kind of Manamai is an amazing song, an incredible song. Um, And they're possibly not as well known, but they're, they're, you know, breathtaking.
5: My words don't know the truth. They flutter as I speak. The sickness I feel under my belt Is the disdain I have for me I've asked you to stand tall But it's me who's falling down A better man I'd like to be Can't find my way home now So what kind of man am I i never looked up to see the sky And every word I say Has come back to haunt me every day So here I stand alone Crippled on my cane The coward I've become The loser and the game. Okay, so the, yeah, so
3: Springsteen, Dylan, Petty, Seeger, Mellencamp is is he, is he up there? Is he on the Mount Rushmore of American songwriters? What do you think?
4: Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, I think I think he would have been he would have been seen as a great songwriter if he'd stopped after *Lonesome Jubilee*. I think just on what was on *Uh Huh*, *Scarecrow*, and um, *Lonesome Jubilee*—three knockout—and yeah. you, you forget how big those you know three knockout records in a row. I think Big Daddy's a great record, but I, I think from the point he left, he stopped trying to be to write radio hits, and I think Freedom's Road's probably the bridge from that record. I think Freedom's Road onwards, he's made three or four remark. I, I think he's had a great, great late period, and those records. I think he said, "I think Life, Death, Love, and Freedom." You could stand that next to. To any American record of the last 20, 30 years. It, it's a phenomenal piece of work, and, an amazing record, and no better than this is not that far behind. Um, so I think on, on the balance, yeah, there's, there's not many songwriters that you could sketch out 30, 40 songs across that amount of time. And he's still writing great records and testing himself. So I, I don't think there's any, I think Johnny Cash, I think Johnny Cash he had a message passed that Johnny Cash thought he was one of the great American songwriters. And if he, if it's good enough for Johnny Cash, I think it's good enough for anybody else. I think, yeah, definitely. He's, he's up there.
1: <laughs> Your career could end at that point.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you'd be pretty happy with that. I think, you, I think you'd take that.
1: Is there going to be a Jack and Diane
3: musical? Is that ever coming out?
4: Yeah. um, The last time I spoke, to, I, I, I'd i spoken to people who were been involved in that. They were doing read throughs just before the pandemic in New York. They'd done read throughs and castings for it. So I think work on that has gone on in the scripting and all the rest of it. So it, it was like everything else. It will have been moved back. I, he described it as wanting to do something like Tennessee Williams on the stage. So, he, <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't set his bar low so that, or the yeah. challenges. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, yeah, that, that's, I, I think work on that has continued. I think that will probably be when the next 12 to 18 months, that was to the night of day.
3: The Camp story continues.
4: He, he, will, he Cause he's a cussed old goat as well. Cause obviously he's retired three times from music.
3: <laughs>
0: um
4: at the last count i think that's the thing with him it's like sort of about aging he's not one of those people who's gone into his dotage uh and rested on his laurels he's i would wage if you sat him down now he would tell you he still fervently and genuinely does believe he's got his best record still in it uh, and he's still to make it and he's like you said about you know wanting to make the song that he still believes he's got to write that song so i think he, he told me once he he'd envisaged how he wanted to go and he wanted to be laid out on a board in the, in the living room and all this sort of stuff. So until they're doing that, I think he will be trying to do the best thing he's ever done. And that's probably what sustains him and keeps him going.
3: Suck it up and tough it out. <laughs> yep.
1: so you have answered my question about why, why you chose to write about him. All right. So
3: yeah, the book Mellencamp, this is out now and uh, yeah, thank you for, for this book. It's, uh, it was really nice to spend some time with John Mellencamp and, and learn all about his life and he's quite an inspiration so so thank you for that appreciate and it and you thank
1: yeah. you for coming on to talk about it that was a that well, was thank, thank you for having
3: me you've ta- you've given us way too much time uh it was wonderful so thanks a lot and uh, best of luck with this book and uh yeah look forward to some more from you
4: okay thanks very much folks thanks all right. paul all
3: right cheers okay holly so do you have a greater appreciation for john melancamp
1: I really do. I really, genuinely do. I loved reading this book, and he, as I said during the podcast, I was I've been a, a you know a moderate fan. I wasn't so familiar with his later uh, you know, the music he's created later in life. I really loved learning his backstory. The book was really well written.
3: It was great to spend a time reading this book and learning all about John Mellencamp and what drives him. What drives him is basically John Mellencamp drives himself. no one one tells john mellencamp what to do that's what i learned um what drives us holly
1: this podcast drives us i think right
3: yes every friday new episodes if this is your first time please subscribe we also have a wonderful youtube channel that holly moderates tell us all about that holly
1: well thanks thanks for that compliment dave yes i i'm posting clips outtakes from our interviews daily so come back check it out subscribe and uh, you can also find us on social media, WDDIM Podcast. And thank you for listening. We're also a member of the Pantheon Podcast family.
3: Yes, they have some wonderful podcasts up there. Uh, Pantheonpodcast.com. Check out what they've got. It's not just what differences are there, But, you know, after you're done with us, you can see what else is going on. There. So until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out.